Chapter Seventeen of Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Reichert. Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic by Benedetto Croce. Translated by Douglas Ainsley. 1865 to 1948 chapter 17 the history of literature and art historical criticism in literature and art its importance this brief exposition of the method by which is obtained reintegration of the original conditions in which the work of art was produced and by which reproduction and judgment are made possible shows how important is the function fulfilled by historical research concerning artistic and literary works, that is to say, by what is usually called historical criticism, or method, in literature and art. Without tradition and historical criticism, the enjoyment of all or nearly all works of art produced by humanity would be irrevocably lost we should be little more than animals immersed in the present alone or in the most recent past only fools despise and laugh at him who reconstitutes an authentic text explains the sense of words and customs investigates the conditions in which an artist lived and accomplishes all those labors which revive the qualities and the original coloring of works of art Sometimes the depreciatory or negative judgment refers to the presumed or proved uselessness of many researches made to recover the correct meaning of artistic works. But it must be observed, in the first place, that historical research does not only fulfill the task of helping to reproduce and judge artistic works. The biography of a writer or of an artist, for example, and the study of the costume of a period also possess their own interest foreign to the history of art, but not foreign to other forms of history. If allusion be made to those researches which do not appear to have interest of any kind, nor to fulfil any purpose, it must be replied that the historical student must often reconcile himself to the useful, but little glorious, office of a cataloguer of facts. These facts remain for the time being formless, incoherent, and insignificant but they are preserves or mines for the historian of the future and for whomsoever may afterward want them for any purpose in the same way books which nobody asks for are placed on the shelves and are noted in the catalogues because they may be asked for at some time or other certainly in the same way that an intelligent librarian gives the preference to the acquisition and to the cataloguing of those books which he foresees may be of more or better service so do intelligent students possess the instinct as to what is or may more probably be useful from among the mass of facts which they are investigating others on the other hand less well endowed less intelligent or more hasty in producing accumulate useless selections rejections and erasures and lose themselves in refinements and gossipy discussions but this appertains to the economy of research and is not our affair at the most it is the affair of the master who selects the subjects of the publisher who pays for the printing 
and of the critic who is called upon to praise or to blame the students for their researches. On the other hand, it is evident that historical research, directed to illuminate a work of art by placing us in a position to judge it, does not alone suffice to bring it to birth in our spirit. Taste and an imagination trained and awakened are likewise presupposed. The greatest historical erudition may accompany a taste in part gross or defective, a lumbering imagination, or, as it is generally phrased, a cold hard heart closed to art. Which is the lesser evil? Great erudition and defective taste, or natural good taste and great ignorance? The question has often been asked, and perhaps it will be best to deny its possibility, because one cannot tell which of two evils is the less, or what exactly that means. The merely learned man never succeeds in entering into communication with the great spirits, and keeps wandering for ever about the outer courts, the staircases, and the antechambers of their palaces. But the gifted ignoramus either passes by masterpieces, which are to him inaccessible, or, instead of understanding the works of art, as they really are, he invents others with his imagination. Now the labour of the former may at least serve to enlighten others, but the ingenuity of the latter remains altogether sterile. How, then, can we fail to prefer the conscientious learned man to the inconclusive man of talent, who is not really talented, if he resign himself, and, in so far as he resigns himself, to come to no conclusion? Literary and Artistic History its distinction from historical criticism and from artistic judgment. It is necessary to distinguish accurately the history of art and literature from those historical labours which make use of works of art, but for extraneous purposes, such as biography, civil, religious, and political history, etc., and also from historical erudition, whose object is preparation for the aesthetic synthesis of reproduction. The difference between the first of these is obvious. The history of art and literature has the works of art themselves for principal subject. The other branches of study call upon and interrogate works of art, but only as witnesses from which to discover the truth of facts which are not aesthetic. The second difference, to which we have referred, may seem less profound. However, it is very great erudition devoted to rendering clear again the understanding of works of art aims simply at making appear a certain internal fact an aesthetic reproduction artistic and literary history on the other hand does not appear until such reproduction has been obtained it demands therefore further labour like all other history its object is to record precisely such facts as have really taken place that is, artistic and literary facts. A man who, after having acquired the requisite historical erudition, reproduces in himself and tastes a work of art, may remain simply a man of taste, or express at the most his own feeling, with an exclamation of beautiful or ugly. This does not suffice for the making of a historian of literature and art. There is further need that the simple act of reproduction be followed in him by a second internal operation. What is this new operation? 
it is in its turn an expression the expression of the reproduction the historical description exposition or representation there is this difference then between the man of taste and the historian the first merely reproduces in his spirit the work of art the second after having reproduced it represents it historically thus applying to it those categories by which as we know history is differentiated from pure art artistic and literary history is therefore a historical work of art founded upon one or more works of art the denomination of artistic or literary critic is used in various senses sometimes it is applied to the student who devotes his services to literature sometimes to the historian who reveals the works of art of the past in their reality more often to both by critic is sometimes understood in a more restricted sense he who judges and describes contemporary literary works and by historian he who is occupied with less recent works these are but linguistic usages and empirical distinctions which may be neglected because the true difference lies between the learned man the man of taste and the historian of art these words designate as it were three successive stages of work of which each is relatively independent of the one that follows but not of that which precedes as we have seen a man may be simply learned yet possess little capacity for understanding works of art he may indeed be both learned and possess taste yet be unable to write a page of artistic and literary history but the true and complete historian while containing in himself as necessary prerequisites both the learned man and the man of taste must add to their qualities the gift of historical comprehension and representation the method of artistic and literary history the method of artistic and literary history presents problems and difficulties some common to all historical method others peculiar to it because they derive from the concept of art itself critique of the problem of the origin of art history is wont to be divided into the history of man the history or nature and the mixed history of both the preceding without examining here the question of the solidity of this division it is clear that artistic and literary history belongs in any case to the first since it concerns a spiritual activity that is to say an activity proper to man and since this activity is its subject the absurdity of propounding the historical problem of the origin of art becomes at once evident we should note that by this formula many different things have in turn been included on many different occasions origin has often meant nature or disposition of the artistic fact and here was a real scientific or philosophic problem the very problem in fact which our treatise has tried to solve at other times by origin has been understood the ideal genesis the search for the reason of art the deduction of the artistic fact from a first principle containing in itself both spirit and nature this is also a philosophical problem and it is complementary to the preceding indeed it coincides with it 
though it has sometimes been strangely interpreted and solved by means of an arbitrary and semi-fantastic metaphysic. But when it has been sought to discover further exactly in what way the artistic function was historically formed, this has resulted in the absurdity to which we have referred. If expression be the first form of consciousness, how can the historical origin be sought of what is presupposed not to be a product of nature and of human history? How can we find the historical genesis of that which is a category, by means of which every historical genesis and fact are understood? The absurdity has arisen from the comparison with human institutions, which have, in fact, been formed in the course of history, and which have disappeared, or may disappear in its course. There exists between the aesthetic fact and a human institution, such as monogamic marriage or the fife, a difference to some extent comparable with that between simple and compound bodies in chemistry. It is impossible to indicate the formation of the former, otherwise they would not be simple, and if this be discovered, they cease to be simple and become compound. The problem of the origin of art historically understood is only justified when it is proposed to seek not for the formation of the function, but where and when art has appeared for the first time, appeared, that is to say, in a striking manner, at what point or in what region of the globe, and at what point or epoch of its history, when, that is to say, not the origin of art, but its most antique or primitive history, is the object of research. This problem forms one with that of the appearance of human civilization on the earth. Data for its solution are certainly wanting, but there yet remains the abstract possibility, and certainly attempts and hypotheses for its solution abound. HISTORY AND THE CRITERION OF PROGRESS Every form of human history has the concept of progress for foundation, but by progress must not be understood the imaginary and metaphysical law of progress, which should lead the generations of man with irresistible force to some unknown destiny, according to a providential plan which we can logically divine and understand. A supposed law of this sort is the negation of history itself, of that accidentality, that empiricity, that contingency, which distinguish the concrete fact from the abstraction. And for the same reason, progress has nothing to do with the so-called law of evolution. If evolution mean the concrete fact of reality which evolves, that is, which is reality, it is not a law. If, on the other hand, it be a law, it becomes confounded with the law of progress in the sense just described. The progress of which we speak here is nothing but the concept of human activity itself, which, working upon the material supplied to it by nature, conquers obstacles and bends nature to its own ends. Such conception of progress, that is to say, of human activity applied to a given material, is the point of view of the historian of humanity. No one but a mere collector of stray facts, a simple seeker, or an incoherent chronicler, can put together the smallest narrative of human deeds, unless he have a definite point of view, that is to say, 
an intimate personal conviction regarding the conception of the facts which he has undertaken to relate. The historical work of art cannot be achieved among the confused and discordant mass of crude facts, save by means of this point of view, which makes it possible to carve a definite figure from that rough and incoherent mass. The historian of a practical action should know what is economy and what morality. The historian of mathematics, what are mathematics? The historian of botany, what is botany? The historian of philosophy, what is philosophy? But if he do not really know these things, he must at least have the illusion of knowing them. Otherwise he will never be able to delude himself that he is writing history. We cannot delay here to demonstrate the necessity and the inevitability of this subjective criterion in every narrative of human affairs. We will merely say that this criterion is compatible with the utmost objectivity, impartiality, and scrupulosity in dealing with data and indeed forms a constitutive element of such subjective criterion. It suffices to read any book of history to discover at once the point of view of the author, if he be a historian worthy of the name and know his own business. There exist liberal and reactionary, rationalist and Catholic historians, who deal with political or social history. For the history of philosophy there are metaphysical, empirical, skeptical, idealist and spiritualist historians. Absolutely historical historians do not and cannot exist. Can it be said that Thucydides and Polybius, Livy and Tacitus, Machiavelli and Guicciardini, Genoni and Voltaire, were without moral and political views? And in our time, Guizot or Thiers, Macaulay or Balbot, Ranke or Momsen, and in the history of philosophy from Hegel, who was the first to raise it to a great elevation, to Ritter, Zeller, Cousin, Luz, and Arspaventa, was there one who did not possess his conception of progress and criterion of judgment? Is there one single work of any value in the history of aesthetic, which has not been written from this or that point of view, with this or that bias, Hegelian or Herbartian, from a sensualist or from an eclectic point of view, and so on? If the historian is to escape from the inevitable necessity of taking a side, he must become a political and scientific eunuch, and history is not the business of eunuchs. They would at most be of use in compiling those great tomes of not useless erudition, Illumbus Atquifracta, which are called, not without reason, monkish. If, then, the concept of progress, the point of view, the criterion, be inevitable, the best to be done is not to try and escape from them, but to obtain the best possible. Everyone strives for this end, when he forms his own convictions, seriously and laboriously. Historians who profess to wish to interrogate the facts, without adding anything of their own to them, are not to be believed. This, at the most, is the result of ingenuousness and illusion on their part. They will always add what they have of personal, if they be truly historians, though it be without knowing it, or they will believe that they have escaped doing so, only because they have referred to it by innuendo, which is the most insinuating and penetrative of methods. 
non-existence of a unique line of progress in artistic and literary history. Artistic and literary history cannot dispense with the criterion of progress any more easily than other history. We cannot show what a given work of art is, save by proceeding from a conception of art, in order to fix the artistic problem which the author of such work of art had to solve, and by determining whether or no he have solved it, or by how much and in what way he has failed to do so. But it is important to note that the criterion of progress assumes a different form in artistic and literary history to that which it assumes, or is believed to assume, in the history of science. The whole history of knowledge can be represented by one single line of progress and regress. Science is the universal, and its problems are arranged in one single vast system, or complex problem. All thinkers weary themselves over the same problem as to the nature of reality and of knowledge. Contemplative Indians and Greek philosophers, Christians and Mohammedans, bare heads and heads with turbans, wigged heads and heads with the black beretta, as Heine said, and future generations will weary themselves with it, as ours has done. It would take too long to inquire here if this be true or not of science. But it is certainly not true of art. Art is intuition, and intuition is individuality. And individuality is never repeated. To conceive of the history of the artistic production of the human race as developed along a single line of progress and regress would therefore be altogether erroneous. At the most, and working to some extent with generalizations and abstractions, it may be admitted that the history of aesthetic products shows progressive cycles, but each cycle has its own problem, and is progressive only in respect to that problem. When many are at work on the same subject, without succeeding in giving to it the suitable form, yet drawing always more nearly to it, there is said to be progress. When he who gives to it definite form appears, the cycle is said to be complete, progress ended. A typical example of this would be the progress in the elaboration of the mode of using the subject matter of chivalry during the Italian Renaissance, from Pulci to Ariosto. If this instance be made use of, excessive simplification of it must be excused. Nothing but repetition and imitation could be the result of employing that same material after Ariosto. The result was repetition or imitation, diminution or exaggeration, a spoiling of what had already been achieved, in some decadence. The Ariostesque epigoni proved this. Progress begins with the commencement of a new cycle. Cervantes, with his more open and conscious irony, is an instance of this. In what did the general decadence of Italian literature at the end of the sixteenth century consist? Simply in having nothing more to say, and in repeating and exaggerating motives already found. If the Italians of this period had even been able to express their own decadence, they would not have been altogether failures, but have anticipated the literary movement of the Renaissance. Where the subject matter is not the same, a progressive cycle does not exist. 
Shakespeare does not represent a progress as regards Dante, nor Goethe as regards Shakespeare. Dante, however, represents a progress in respect to the visionaries of the Middle Ages, Shakespeare to the Elizabethan dramatists, Goethe with Werther and the first part of Faust in respect to the writers of the Sturm und Drang. This mode of presenting the history of poetry and art contains, however, as we have remarked, something of abstract, of merely practical, and is without rigorous philosophical value. Not only is the art of savages not inferior, as art, to that of civilized peoples, provided it be correlative to the impressions of the savage, but every individual, indeed every moment of the spiritual life of an individual, has its artistic world, and all those worlds are artistically incomparable with one another. Errors Committed in Respect to This Law Many have sinned and continue to sin against this special form of the criterion of progress in artistic and literary history. Some, for instance, talk of the infancy of Italian art in Giotto and of its maturity in Raphael or in Titian, as though Giotto were not quite perfect and complete in respect to his psychic material. He was certainly incapable of drawing a figure like Raphael or of colouring it like Titian. But was Raphael or Titian by any chance capable of creating the Matrimonio di San Francesco con la Poverte, or the Morte di San Francesco? The spirit of Giotto had not felt the attraction of the body beautiful, which the Renaissance studied and raised to a place of honour, but the spirits of Raphael and of Titian were no longer curious of certain movements of ardour and of tenderness which attracted the man of the fourteenth century. How, then, can a comparison be made, where there is no comparative term? The celebrated divisions of the history of art suffer from the same defect. They are as follows. An oriental period, representing a disequilibrium between idea and form, with prevalence of the second. A classical, representing an equilibrium between idea and form. A romantic, representing a new disequilibrium between idea and form, with prevalence of the idea. There are also the divisions into oriental art, representing imperfection of form, classical, perfection of form, romantic or modern, perfection of content and of form. Thus classic and romantic have also received, among their many other meanings, that of progressive or regressive periods, in respect to the realization of some indefinite artistic ideal of humanity. Other meanings of the word progress in respect to aesthetic. There is no such thing, then, as an aesthetic progress of humanity. However, by aesthetic progress is sometimes meant not what the two words coupled together really signify, but the ever-increasing accumulation of our historical knowledge, which makes us able to sympathize with all the artistic products of all peoples and of all times, or, as is said, to make our taste more Catholic. The difference appears very great, if the eighteenth century, so incapable of escaping from itself, be compared with our own time, which enjoys alike Hellenic and Roman art, now better understood, Byzantine, 
medieval, Arabic, and Renaissance art, the art of the Cinque Santo, Baroque art, and the art of the 17th century. Egyptian, Babylonian, Etruscan, and even prehistoric art are more profoundly studied every day. Certainly the difference between the savage and civilized man does not lie in the human faculties. The savage has speech, intellect, religion, and morality in common with civilized man, and he is a complete man. The only difference lies in that civilized man penetrates and dominates a larger portion of the universe with his theoretic and practical activity. We cannot claim to be more spiritually alert than, for example, the contemporaries of Pericles. But no one can deny that we are richer than they, rich with their riches, and with those of how many other peoples and generations besides our own. By aesthetic progress is also meant, in another sense, which is also improper, the greater abundance of artistic intuitions, and the smaller number of imperfect or decadent works, which one epoch produces in respect to another. Thus it may be said that there was aesthetic progress, an artistic awakening, at the end of the thirteenth or of the fifteenth centuries. Finally, aesthetic progress is talked of with an eye to the refinement and to the physical complications exhibited in the works of art of the most civilized peoples, as compared with those of less civilized peoples, barbarians and savages, but in this case the progress is that of the complex conditions of society, not of the artistic activity, to which the material is indifferent. These are the most important points concerning the method of artistic and literary history. End of chapter 17 Read by Lisa Reichert